Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Market. I am Dave Meyer, joined today by Henry Washington. Henry, I heard a rumor about you today. Uh-oh, this can't be good. Or maybe it is. It, I don't know. It Go is for it. good. I heard you finished your book. I finished the first half of my book. I'm still working on it. Oh, okay. okay so I'm still working I, show us how, how much attention I was paying in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I finished the first half of the book. We're working on the second half of the book. Well, I've, I've, we've got it all transcripted uh, out, but we've got, we've got some more details to put in there. Well, the team seemed very pleased about, the team at Bigger Pockets Publishing seemed very pleased about your book and that things were coming in on time and it sounds like a great book. What's it about? It is uh, about finding and funding your real estate deal. So great oh, book nice. for beginners to learn how to get out there and start finding these deals. Man, with this economy, it's crazy. So you got to be, you got to get good at finding deals. Heck, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm a beginner, but I, I will definitely read a book if it helps me <laughs> find better deals right now. I would love to know that. When's it, when's it coming out, by the way? Uh, I think it's uh, March. Okay, nice, nice. All right. We're both having uh, Q1 books coming out you always have you have a give a book every cue i have, I have one book out this is gonna be <laughs> my second one i've just been writing this one for three years so i won't shut up about it <laughs> all right well we have a great episode today this is i think they call this one like a this is like a dave meyer special kind of episode we're gonna be getting a little bit nerdy today you know, we have a lot of great shows where we talk about tactical decisions in the economy, things that are going on with your business. But today we're going to sort of go behind the scenes in one of the more detailed technical economic things that do, does impact your business every single day, and that is mortgage rates. But specifically, we're going to talk about how mortgage rates come to be. You might know this from listening to this show a little bit, but the Fed does not set mortgage rates. It is instead set by sort of a complex set of variables. And we're going to dive into those today with Chen Zhao from Redfin. She is an economist and she studies just this, how mortgage rates come to be. And I am so excited, if you can't tell, to 
have her on the show to to dive into this topic that I think everyone is particularly curious about. Yeah, I agree. I am excited as well, but not for the same uh, nerdy reasons that you are excited. But I'm excited because everybody that you talk to has some opinion based on almost nothing about what they think interest rates are going to do. <laughs> and yeah. and people are making decisions about their investing and they're buying properties or not buying properties based on these rando, mm-hmm. uh, uh, these rando factors that they think are going to play into this. And so actually hearing from someone who is looking at this information every day and uh, can make common sense of it for us is going to be super helpful if you are trying to figure out, should you be buying property right now or should you be waiting or how long do you think rates are going to stay where they are or go up or go down? Because these things are impacting the amount of money that investors are making. I think the thing I'm so excited about this for is that, you know, we can all make projections like you're saying, but in this episode, we're going to be helping everyone understand how this is actually going to play out one way or another. We don't know which direction it's going to go, but we can sort of understand the the ingredients that are going to go in and you can form your own informed opinion here and, and use that to make wise investing decisions. So Dave, yes, I'm going to have to ask you to do something. Are you going to be able to hold yourself back and not dive all the way into the deepest weeds possible because this is pretty much your baby here. This is what you love. This yeah. is my dream. I, I mean, like three years ago, four years ago, I didn't even know really what bonds were. And now I spend all day talking about bonds. God, <laughs> <laughs> what has become of me? <laughs> I will do my best to hold back and keep this at a level that is appropriate for real estate investors and not people who just like talking about financial instruments for the sake <laughs> We appreciate you. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with the show. Chen Zhao, welcome to On the Market. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we've been very fortunate to have a bunch of different of your colleagues from Redfin joining us. You guys do such great economic research. What in particular are you focused on tracking and researching in your job at Redfin? Absolutely. Um, Thanks for having so many of us from Redfin on, and we're all big fans of the show. Um, So in my role at Redfin, my job is to basically lead the economics team to think about, you know, how our team can help consumers um, and impact the housing community externally and, you know, also guide Redfin internally with our views on the housing market and economy. So I'm very much involved with, you know, kind of thought leadership on where are the topics that we should really be paying attention to and where should our research be headed towards. Great. And so today we're going to dive into... A little bit of a nerdy, more technical topic. So we're going to put you on the hook here. Uh, we'd like to talk about mortgage rates. I, this is not a very hot take, but clearly given where things are in the market, mortgage rates and their direction are going to play a big role in the direction of the housing market next year. And we'd like to unpack part of how mortgage rates are set. And we all know the Feds have been raising rates, but they don't control mortgage rates. So can you tell us just a little bit more about what economic indicators are correlated to mortgage rates? Sure. Um, I'm going to answer your question a little indirectly, um, but I, you know, I promise I'll get to you know, what you're asking. I think it's helpful to take a step back 
and think about a framework for mortgage rates, right? And actually think about a framework for interest rates more broadly, because, you know, oftentimes we say interest rates in the economy, and there are various interest rates. So at a very basic level, an interest rate, you know, is a price for borrowing money. And it's determined by two things, credit risk and duration risk. So how risky is the person or the entity I'm lending to? And how long am I lending them this money for? So, um, Critical to this discussion is thinking about the bond market. And, you know, bonds are just a way of lending out money to various entities uh, for varying lengths of time. So when we think about the bond market, we're thinking about two metrics. So we're thinking about the price and the yield, which are inversely um, related. So when there's more demand, you know, prices uh, go up and then yields go down and vice versa. Um, and, and really importantly, so when I'm thinking about mortgage rates, there's two other rates that I need to be thinking about. The first is the federal funds rate. That is the rate that the Fed controls. And then there's the 10-year treasury rate, which, um, you know, I think we will probably spend a lot of time talking about today. So mortgage rates actually build on top of both the federal funds rate and the 10-year treasury. So in that framework that I was talking about, for the federal funds rate, there is no credit risk at all. This is an overnight lending rate between banks. And there's also no duration risk. If I'm thinking about treasuries now, the treasury market, Treasuries come in a wide variety of forms, so anything from a one-month treasury bill up to a 30-year treasury bond. But the one that's most important to mortgage rates is the 10-year treasury note. This is a reference rate in the economy. This is the most correlated on a day-to-day basis with mortgage rates. And when I'm thinking about the 10-year treasury, you can economists like to think about this as being decomposed into three components. The first is the real rate, and that is the part that is most related to what the Fed is doing. Like how restrictive is the Fed trying to be with the economy or how accommodative is the Fed trying to be? The second part is inflation expectations. So this has to do with duration risk. Um, this means if I'm thinking 10 years out, you know, what is inflation going to be? Because whatever yield I am getting on the 10-year treasury, inflation is going to eat into that, right, as an investor. Um, and then the third is the term premium. And the term premium is kind of the squishiest, right? So term premium is how much excess return I am demanding for holding this for 10 years versus um, a shorter duration. So you asked, um, what are the economic indicators that are most correlated with um, mortgage rates? Well, it's all of these things that are going to affect the 10-year treasury note. So um, inflation, obviously, is important um, when we're thinking um, also about economic growth. So we're looking at GDP. We're looking at labor market conditions. So all of the major economic components um, are going to be feeding into what the 10-year treasury yield is. And then mortgage rates build on top of that. So I said the two are very much correlated. Um, but so what that means is that mortgage rates are usually trading at a spread relative to the 10-year treasury. And that spread, most of the time, is remaining pretty consistent. But one of the main stories of the past year is that that mortgage, that spread has really ballooned. And we can talk about why that is and what the outlook is um, for that as well. Yeah, I think it's like you're it's like, you know, exactly what we're going to ask, because I think that's exactly where we wanted to go is to try to understand. Uh, and, and well, first, let me go back and say, I think that was the best explanation of interest rates and how they work that we've ever had on the show. So that was fantastic. Thank you for breaking that down. But secondly, yeah, I think we want to understand like, so the 10 year treasury rate yield kind of where it's currently at versus wh where it's historically been and how that's impacting the market. Absolutely. 
So today, right now, I think the 10-year treasury is sitting just above four or five. Um, that's where it was um, yesterday at close. And I think it's actually climbing a little bit today. And this is a historic high, um, I think perhaps since 2007, if I um, have my data correct. Um, and it's been climbing a lot. So in May um, of this year, it was about 100 basis points lower. Um, so the real story um, for mortgage markets um, in the past few months has really been why has the 10-year treasury yield gone up so much? And importantly, it's confusing because inflation has actually fallen <laughs> these last few months. And I think for a lot of people um, who are listening to this are probably thinking, you know, I've been reading in the press and the economists have been telling me that if inflation falls, mortgage rates will fall. So why hasn't that happened? And it really has to do with this framework that I was talking about. So like I said, since um, the whole debt ceiling debacle um, was resolved, the 10-year treasury has gone up about 100 basis points. So let's think about why that is. Um, about half of that is what I you know, would call the term premium. So this means that um, what this is related to is mostly concerns about long-term debt for the U.S. government and treasury issuance. So as we know, the country is borrowing more and more. So there's more and more supply of treasury debt. At the same time, um, demand for that treasury debt has not kept up. And that um, is causing that term premium to increase. The other main story is um, the increase in real rates. So this is the idea that the Fed um, is increasingly telling us that they are going to hold higher for longer. Not necessarily they're going, they're going higher than where they are right now, but that they are going to hold at this high restrictive level for a longer amount of time. Meaning that one, um, that they're, you know, projecting they will start cutting next year in the back half of the, uh, 2024. But when they start cutting, it'll, it's, you know, later than, previously we thought, and that it's fewer cuts, so it's slower than we thought. So oftentimes people are like, you know, debating, is the Fed going to hike again? You know, actually another 25 basis points doesn't matter so much. The real story now is how long are we going to stay in this restrictive territory? Um, and then the other component of, you know, uh, the 10-year yield that I've talked about before, inflation expectations, that actually hasn't really changed very much. So that's not really playing a big story here. Um, but if you're, you know, someone who's following financial news, you have probably heard a lot of talk about this idea that the neutral rate has increased. Um, and that's, I think, really important to touch on right now. And it's um, related to what I was talking about in terms of demand for treasury debt and this idea that we're having higher interest rates for longer. So the neutral rate is something in the economy that we is unobserved. We cannot measure it. My favorite way to think about it is that's kind of like your metabolism. You know, when you're a teenager, you can eat a lot. You're probably not going to gain weight. Um, you have a high metabolism. Later on in life, your metabolism shifts. You can't really measure. The doctor can't tell you what it is, but you find that you have, you can't really eat the same things and maintain the same weight anymore, right? Um, and the same thing sort of happens in the economy where after the financial crisis, it seemed like the neutral rate really fell. And that's why the Fed was holding rates really low and we could not really even get inflation above 2%. But then something happened after the pandemic um, where all of a sudden it felt like, you know, we had a lot of more inflation, the rates had to be higher. 
So what investors and increasing the Fed, um, Jerome Powell acknowledged this in the last press conference, is coming around to is this idea that the neutral rate has shifted up. And that means that we basically just have to have higher rates um, for a longer amount of time. And that view is also what is pushing the 10-year rate up, and that's pushing mortgage rates up. As you said, Chen, that we've seen this sort of steady rise in mortgage rates over the summer, and it seems to have accelerated since this most recent press conference. And it seems that what you just talked about is really what's going on here is that we saw a few things. One, the summary of economic projections, which the Fed puts out with um, some of their meetings, shows that they still think that we're going to have higher rates at the end of 2024. So that's, you know, a full year from now. But when you talk about the neutral rate, which I thought that was a great explanation of, is that sort of the indefinite sort of balance, the ideal theoretical balance that people want to, that the Fed wants to get to? So even after 2024, like basically as far out as they are projecting, they think that the best rate that they can do is somewhere around 3% for the federal funds. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So um, that is exactly what the neutral rate is. It is the rate that um, the Fed would hold the Fed funds rate at that would hold um, inflation and the unemployment rate in check. So the Fed has this dual mandate, right, which is that we want low inflation and low unemployment rate. Um, and the neutral rate is basically um, a rate at which we are neither um, stimulating the economy nor are we trying to actively contract the economy. And so when the Fed puts out its projection, it says, okay, for the long term, you know, like basically past like, you know, two, three years, where do we project that neutral rate to be? And their latest um, summary of economic projections, they actually kept that neutral rate at two and a half percent, which was actually confusing for folks, because hmm. if you looked at what their projection was for, you know, 2025, 2026, um, it was showing a higher rate, but it was also showing the economy essentially in balance. So there was kind of this 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 uh, discrepancy between, well, what you're saying for the long term versus what you're saying for the next like two to three years. And, um, you know, uh, reporters pointed this out. And what Powell pointed to was this idea that, well, the neutral rate changes. There's also this idea of a short term neutral rate versus a long term neutral rate. And I think this is starting to get like a little too deep into the rabbit hole. But what's I think important, like as a takeaway from this whole discussion, is that the Fed is telling us that they're coming around to this idea that this neutral rate has increased and it could still change in the future. But if we're thinking about a 10 year, um, you know, treasury rate or talking about a 30 year fixed mortgage rate, this is going to play a big role in setting a kind of a baseline expectation for what those rates should be. This information is extremely helpful to investors, and I don't want investors to kind of hear, you know, how deep we're getting and, and not think about like, what does this mean to you as you are buying property or as you are considering buying property? And so uh, what I what I think I'm hearing, I think one of the most important things I heard you say was that this could be a signal or that the Fed is signaling that we're, that interest rates are going to stay in this realm of what we consider to be high for a longer period of time than what most originally anticipated. And so for me as an investor, as the investing landscape has changed over the past year due to these rates rising, 
the, the, a lot of strategies has changed. So it's, it's hard to buy properties that cash flow because of the cost of money, right? That cost of money, that interest rate is eating into the money that I can make by renting out the property. So if you're a long-term investor and you're looking to buy properties that cash flow, what's happening is people are jumping in right now and they're willing to buy properties sometimes that break even or even lose a little bit of money every month because people have been betting on saying, if I can buy these properties and hold them for the next six to 12 months, well, then, boom, if rates come down, that means that I can refinance and then my cash flow will absolutely be there. And then I can go ahead and sell off some of these properties if I want to, because when rates come down, people get off the sidelines, they go start buying again. There's still an inventory issue. And so now prices start to go up. And so it seems like a good bet right now to buy. But as an investor, what I'm hearing is you really have to be careful about doing that and you have to have the reserves uh, to be able to hold on to these properties longer because we really don't have a definite answer on when and if those rates are going to come down or how much they're going to come down. Yes, I agree with what you're saying. I think that it is definitely the case that as um, inflation, you know, kind of got out of control and then the Fed started its hiking cycle last spring, that there was this like rock solid belief among many people that this was an aberration and not a paradigm shift. And all we have to do is hold on and wait for things for this to pass. And then we'll be back to normal that what we were experiencing before was normal. Um, and I think what people are increasingly thinking now is that, well, if you take a longer term view of interest rates, what you look and you look back at whether it's the 10 year treasury or you're looking at mortgage rates, over the last few decades, it's a story of rates just coming down. And post-financial crisis, rates were very low. And like I was saying with my metabolism um, analogy, that could have been the aberration. And we might actually be looking at, you know, kind of a return to maybe a more historical norm. That could definitely be the case. Now, with that being said, the other thing I would caution is that there is a huge amount of uncertainty regarding the economy right now. So if you had had me on last year, what I would have told you was there's a lot of uncertainty about the economy right now. But <laughs> I will say that this year, there is even more uncertainty. And the reason is because last year, we knew kind of what the basic story was. We knew inflation was out of control. The Fed had this fight on its hands and it was going to hike interest rates really, really fast. And so we were going to watch that play out in 2023. And that is what we watched play out in 2023. Now the Fed has done this um, and we're in this position where they hiked at, like, you know, more quickly than they have ever done so in, in history. And we're sitting here and it's just the question is, well, what happens now? And there is still um, recession risk that's significant. Um, I think a lot of people have like sort of adopted this view that we got the soft landing, recession risk is over, the economy is so resilient. I think that we still can't forget that recession risk. And then on the other hand, there is still, you know, inflation could still get out of control, rates could still go higher, you know, so there's actually risk on both sides. Um, when I went skiing, like used to go skiing, um, there was this trail where you, you would ski and there was like a cliff on both sides. This is kind of how I think about this in some sense, where there's this risk on both sides. So that creates a huge amount of uncertainty. If you look at futures markets right now, for what the futures markets are predicting about the 10-year treasury one year from today, they're basically predicting that yields will be the same um, as they are today. So that's this idea that interest rates are basically going to stay here. And that is assuming for mortgage rates that mortgage spreads also stay pretty consistent 
um, to where they are right now, which is not necessarily um, going to be the case. So let's dig into to spreads there, because we, we talk about that a bit on this show. And just as a reminder to everyone, there is a historic correlation between 10-year treasuries and mortgage rates. And it usually is, I think it's like 170, 190 basis points, something like that. Now it's, what, 300 basis points? You know, significantly higher than it used to be. So you talked about that, uh, the spread. So maybe we should just jump back a little bit. And can you explain like how, why the spread is usually so consistent, how it has changed uh, over the course of the last few years? Sure, absolutely. So um, like I was saying, uh, mortgage rates are on a day-to-day basis, very much tightly correlated with 10-year treasuries. So the 10-year treasuries going up today, mortgage rates are probably going to go up today. Over a longer period of time, that relationship is less certain. And like you said, um, historically, just depending on how you measure it, it's about 170-ish basis points, right? Um, but conceptually, you know, why would that spread change? Well, so I think there's two important things to think about. One is rate volatility and expected prepayment risk. So the thing that really differentiates mortgage bonds from uh, government bonds like treasuries is that mortgage bonds have this built-in prepayment risk. So someone who has a 30-year fixed mortgage can refinance or pay off their mortgage with no cost um, at any point. So investors can have their income stream cut off at any point, and they have to think about that when they're investing in the security. When interest rates are very volatile or when interest rates are really high and investors expect that that is an aberration and then interest rates will come down in the future, like all this talk of, of buy now, refinance later, then they're going to demand a much higher um, premium for buying mortgage bonds. And that is uh, a big part of the story about uh, why mortgage spreads have ballooned over this past year. The other part of the story is just simply demand for MBS. So, um, and there's two parts of this. One is the Fed. So the Fed owns about 25% of outstanding MBS. During the pandemic, they bought I think, something like $3 trillion um, of MBS because in order to stimulate the economy during that um, very deep recession, the Fed you know, brought out the QE playbook again and said, we will commit to buying an unlimited amount of MBS in order to hold you know, like this ship together. Um, and they kept buying, even when it seemed like actually the housing market was doing fine. But then they stopped. And when they stopped, um, that was a big buyer all of a sudden just exited that, that market. Um, and then the second um, st- uh, part of the demand story is banks. So banks have a lot of MBS already on their balance sheet. And because of what's going on with interest rates, there's a lot of unrealized losses um, because of that. But they can mark it to mark, they can mark that as like kind of something that's to be held to maturity. And therefore they don't have to mark to market the losses on that. But that also means that they have less appetite <laughs> to buy more MBS now. And Ever since SVB happened in March, um, you know, I think the view on deposits for banks has um, changed. So that means that if banks feel like deposits are less sticky, meaning that there's more, uh, there's a greater chance that deposits could leave, they need, uh, they have less demand for long duration assets like MBS. So that will also lead to less um, demand for banks for MBS. If you, you know, want to talk about, well, what does that mean? Kind of like, in a forward-looking way? Like, is this a new normal for spreads now? Or, um, you know, could they come back down? Um, so I think that just depends on a few things. So going back to, you know, the two the two um, main reasons why they have, you know, um, 
gotten bigger to begin with. If rate volatility comes down and prepayment risk is coming down, then yes, you could see that spread come down. And that higher for longer, um, you know, idea that rates are going to be higher for longer does mean that I think prepayment risk does come down a little bit. And so therefore, there is a little room for um, spreads to come down. And then if you think about demand for MBS, well, so the Fed is out, banks are out, but you know, there's still money, um, you know, money managers, there's hedge funds. And at some point, there's a ceiling on how big these spreads can get, because some investors will start to say, well, actually, you know, I'm, if I, I can get this huge payoff for investing in MBS, I should do that relative to, you know, other fixed in- income securities. So they can't, there's a ceiling to how big the spreads can get as well. And just to clarify for everyone listening, MBS is mortgage-backed securities. It's basically when investors or banks or originators basically pool together mortgages and sell them as securities on the market to all of the different parties that Chen just listed. You know, for a while now, the Fed has been buying them. Normally, it's you know banks or pension funds or different people can basically invest in them. Chen, you know, this demand side of MBS thing is something that I've been trying to learn a little bit more about, and. The other thing that I was curious about, and this is going to be maybe a little too nerdy, so we shouldn't go too deep into it, but how does how do bond rates for other and sort of yields in across the world and other countries sort of impact demand? Because I've seen that investors are maybe fleeing to, you know, or at least hedging their bets and putting their money in either securities or stock markets in other countries because, uh, and that is also impacting the 10-year yield. Is that right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I think the way an economist would think about this, right, is um, just like the opportunity cost of your money, right? So if you are an investor, you can invest in stocks, you can invest in fixed income securities, you can, um, you know, invest in foreign exchange, you know, currencies, all there's all these different vehicles um, that you can put your money in. And if you're thinking about fixed income securities, you can invest in, you know, these asset backed securities like MBS, or you can invest in government bonds. Um, and if you're thinking about government bonds, you can think about U.S. government bonds versus government bonds for um, other countries, right? As well as, you know, all these other things that I'm not talking about. So yes, as the rate of return on these other assets are changing, that is also going to influence the demand for both U.S. government bonds and also MBS. And that in turn is going to influence, you know, the price and therefore the um, interest rates that are associated with these bonds. So I want to shift a little bit and kind of get uh, some There'll be some speculation and opinion here, but there's one factor uh, that we haven't hit on yet that could have an impact or that some people feel may have an impact on mortgage rates in the future. And that's the next presidential election. So can you talk to us a little bit about how a political change in power might positively or negatively affect mortgage rates um, or has that happened historically? So speaking specifically, if the Republican Party wins the election, then we have a, a, a shift from a Democratic Party to a Republican and how that might impact rates. Absolutely. So I think the most direct path that um, economists would think about when they're thinking about something like an election is similar to other geo. Uh, geopolitical events, which is thinking about it through the lens of um, what is the threat to economic growth? Um, What does this mean for the strength of the economy? 
So that would be similar to how we would think about like all the ongoing strikes that are happening, the resumption of student loans, the government shutdown um, that seems like it's looming. All of these things are kind of, we can use kind of a similar framework. So kind of historically, if you think about, well, are the you know Democrats going to be in power or will it be the Republicans? You know, there's this perception that Republicans are more friendly to economic growth and maybe to the business community. So maybe that would be good. On the other hand, it depends on, you know, specific candidates. Is there sort of just, you know, tail risk associated with any specific candidates who might be in power? I think people would take that into consideration and thinking about is that going to is that more likely to lead to um, a recession. And then you might also think about, you know, having these candidates in power mean for who is nominated to lead the Fed, for example, and what policies are, um, you know, their administration is going to pursue. Um, so all of these things will come into play, which all goes to say that I don't think there's a really simple kind of cut and dry, like, if this person comes into power, that means, you know, stock markets and bond markets will do this, or, and you know, uh, vice versa. But that's the framework that I would use. So I, I don't want to put you in the, on a, in the hot seat and ask you what rates will be next year. But if you had to pick like two or three indicators to watch going into next year to get a sense of where mortgage rates start to go, what would you recommend people look at? Absolutely. So I'm glad you're not asking me to make a forecast because I that's <laughs> coming later. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, um, I think a lot of economists are kind of feeling like maybe we need to change the batteries on our crystal ball or something. But, um, you know, so I think if you're, you're if you are trying to think like in a forward way about, um, you know, where the economy is headed, where um, you know rates are headed, looking at um, kind of a consensus expectation is going to be your best bet. And that's kind of what the, like, you know, what futures markets and, you know, that sort of thing kind of imply. And that's what really that is. Um, that being said, you know, we are living at a time of, I think, unprecedented uncertainty. So you have to really take that with a grain of salt. So, you know, what are we looking at um, when we're trying to take a forward-looking view? I think it's all the standard stuff that we have been looking at, which is really just the main economic data releases. So inflation, even though, you know, I said inflation's gone down, why did rates go up? Well, inflation is still an important part of the story because if inflation goes back up again, you know, right now, um, just in this past month or two, oil prices have shot back up again, and that could have really profound implications for interest rates again. So continuing to keep an eye on inflation is very, very important. And then the most important economic indicator for the economy in general is not actually GDP. It's actually um, the labor market. So it is our the jobs report. It's thinking about the unemployment rate, looking at how many jobs are being added every month to the economy. And then there's also associated labor market reports, such as JOLTS, so the Job Openings and Labor and uh, Turnover Survey, um, has been getting a lot of attention this past year. And then also the private sector numbers, like ADP and all of that. So it's really all of the same standard economic data. Um, and what's really different about economics today versus when I started um, you know, my career is that there is so much more private sector data now. So um, on the housing side, obviously, Redfin, we provide a lot of private sector um, data about the housing market that we think is you know, more forward looking than what you get um, from public data sources. And so similarly, I think it's important to pay attention to data, for example, that the JP Morgan Chase Institute and the Bank of America Institute puts out 
about the you know state of the U.S. consumer in terms of how much more savings is there left. So we know that there was a ton of savings. People had a lot of excess savings after the pandemic. Has that really dried up? And if it has dried up, you know, for whom and who still has savings? And that's important for when we're thinking about issues like, you know, people are going to start paying student loans again um, in just a few days. Who is um, on the hook to make those student loan payments and who has the money to make those payments? And what will it imply for their spending going forward? So a lot of there's a lot of private um, sector data sources that I think are also really important to pay attention to. Great. Thank you so much, Jen. This has been incredibly helpful. Obviously, people can find you at Redfin. Is there anywhere in particular that you put out your work or where people should follow you? Yes. Yeah, so um, the Redfin uh, news site is, um, you know, where we publish all of our uh, reports. And we also just recently added a From Our Economist corner of that um, to that uh, website where you can see kind of quick takes about, you know, events that happen or economic developments. So that's a really great place to find all of our thoughts. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Chen. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me. What'd you think? Well, first and foremost, that was an incredible job at taking a super complex topic and making it understandable, even for people who don't have an economics background or understand how all of these factors play into each other, because I don't. And I was able to like I was able to follow that better than any other economic conversation that we've had. And um, I think that's hugely valuable to our audience. You know, there's there's just a ton of speculation out there and everybody everybody's like a, a street economist, right? They're all like, yeah, interest rates will come down in six months and then it'll be crazy out there. And no one really knows. And it's it's good to hear somebody that is like actively looking at these numbers consistently and looking at these indicators consistently say that, well, you know, my crystal ball still needs some battery. So just just a good word of caution that you got to be careful with your strategy out there. Totally. I, you know, the more the more I learn about economics, the less I think I, I try to make predictions and the more I just try to understand the variables and the things that go into what's going to happen. Like no one knows what's going to go happen with mortgage rates. But if I can sort of understand how the spread works, if I can sort of understand why 10 year treasuries move in the way that they do, then you'll at least be able to monitor things in real time and make an informed guess instead of just like making these reactions based on fear, which is what I think all these, you know, armchair economists are doing. So give me a scale of one to 10. <laughs> how hard was it for you not to just completely nerd out and go all the way into the weeds on Dude, everything I she was wanted, talking about? Uh, I wanted to ask about how the Bank of Japan's recent decision, <laughs> this is not a joke. I literally was like, should I ask about Bank of Japan policy and what they're doing with their bond yields? And I just knew no one would give a about what I was talking about. <laughs> but I wanted to ask. I could oh, see man. I could see it on your face <laughs> that you were just you were wanting to you were like this, this is my people. How I know. I was like, I need to keep Chen around after so we could just have like a side conversation about just total not totally in the weeds nonsense. But hopefully Henry was here to keep us in the, the realm of what normal investors and normal people want to talk about. <laughs> but all in all, I thought it was great. You know, I, 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 it was. 
plenty wonky for me. There was, there was tons of good information. And again, yeah, she made it super, super digestible. And, uh, yeah, hopefully everyone walks away knowing a little bit more about why things go the way they do. Cause, you know, I, I think honestly, the, the most surprised people are is when you explain to them that mortgage rates aren't dictated by the Fed. And like we talk about that all the time. So I feel like people who listen to the show have gotten to that. But I didn't know that like five or six years ago. I didn't really right. understand it. And I think the more you can understand how these sort of abstract things influence your business, like literally your everyday existence yep. are influenced by 10 year treasuries. Like who knew? Uh, I think it's just very interesting and super important to to pay attention to. Yeah. How she explained it in a framework made it so much easier to understand. Like I just kept envisioning her. I'm like, man, I wish we had her in front of a whiteboard kind of writing all this out. That would be cool. We should <laughs> don't give me ideas. That <laughs> gonna be... <laughs> we're going to have like a mad money Jim Cramer show where we're like <laughs> running it. around, like slapping <laughs> buttons and throwing things around. <laughs> Kaylin will kill us. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, man. This was a lot of fun. Hope you also learned a lot. Let's just do a social check in for you. If people want to follow Henry, where should they do that? Instagram's the best place. I'm at the Henry Washington on Instagram, or you can check me out at my website at cuattheclosingtable.com. All right. And I am at the Data Deli on Instagram. You can find me there as well. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next time for On the Market. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.